0: I'm Danielle Laporte, and essentially, this is a one-woman show about self-realization called With Love, Danielle. Few quick things to mention. These are adult conversations, so heads up. I'll be talking about compassion, self-help fatigue, sex, joy, serving the world. This is about a spirituality that's way more rock and roll than it is oppressive. I'm here to help you turn your anxiety into power, Personally, I want to live more deeply, but lighten up. You're going to hear about all the ways that I have finally figured out how to do that. I am not into making grand motivational promises, but I can commit to showing up as fully, sincerely, authentically as possible with the intention of really alleviating suffering and amplifying joy. Just for starters, it's about doing everything I can to help all of us feel a little less crazy, a lot more full of possibility, and clearly part of the solution. I always wanted to have a near-death experience, but not something too terribly inconvenient or terrifying. I just wanted enough death to get me to the tunnel of light. And then I'd come back with brilliant information for all of humankind or a supernatural talent like x-ray vision or complete unwavering faith. But I've never been struck by lightning. No guru has ever picked me out of the crowd to bless me or give me a Sanskrit name. And I don't see dead people. My enlightenment depends on the machinations of my day-to-day living. Putting on the kettle, my little boy humming, filling the hummingbird feeder, hungry belly, hungry heart, hungry guy on the corner of first and commercial, rice with friends, veins in my heart, tunnels of choices, each leading to the light every single normal, miraculous day. Some people get their spiritual lessons delivered in glorious visitations from etheric beings. Some are miraculously healed from their illnesses. Others, a chosen few, it would seem, have what Zen Buddhists call a satori, a sudden enlightenment experience that renders one illumined, if not a fully realized being. It's easy to glamorize those spiritual rarities and forget that in so many of those cases, those special individuals endured massive suffering or extreme circumstances before their breakthroughs. Eckhart Tolle is one such awakened being. Leading up to his enlightenment experience, he was in a long-term, deeply depressive state and contemplating suicide. I think there are just different tracks of suffering and awakening. Maybe someone like Toli chose the accelerated program, acute suffering and acute awakening. Others choose the beginner level, suffer moderately over a long time, and gradually awaken. The danger in wanting to uplift our consciousness is that we might neglect our human rootedness. Being multidimensional and yogified seems much cooler than, say, working on your conflict resolution skills in the workplace. Multidimensional is cool, and so is being right here and being very, very human. Here's a quote from T.S. Eliot. Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. The need to feel special is a healthy human need. It means that we're being seen and loved for what's seen. But when you combine spirituality with an unchecked hunger to be special, you get spiritual glamour, and it's some nasty, nefarious stuff. Here's the definition of spiritual glamour. It's both a noun and a verb. One, regarding your spirituality as a qualification for special treatment, superiority. And two, new age douche. Spiritual glamour pusses always find a way to insert their esoteric resume into the conversation. I've been meditating for 25 years. Or, my work with the orphans. or. Karmazan Yogi Wanawanda is a personal friend of mine, and when I was yachting with him, he told me, We get it. Your buds with an enlightened master, so you must be special. Spiritual glamour uses spirituality as a shorthand for clout. I got a download, and my spirit guides directed me to, Hey, just because your spirit guide said so doesn't make it more accurate. I heard in meditation we're supposed to work together. Well, that's not what I heard. I'm getting that you should. You know, I'm getting that you should not give me your opinions masked as esoteric counsel from on high. And now I have to disagree with you and all of your spirit guides. Spiritual glamour sets itself above the people it thinks are less evolved, while simultaneously getting its glitter from those very people's admiration and awe. It also tries very hard to win favor from the universe by working diligently toward enlightenment. Spiritual glamour thrives on ranking systems and mystical accoutrements. It's very showy and divisive and forgivable. I think we should all share our mystical stories more freely if we're inspired to, but it's the motivation behind the storytelling that we need to double-check. One person can tell you about their angelic visitation for the sake of connection and being helpful. And as a result, their story brings you closer to them. It's unifying. Another person can tell you they saw angels or aliens, but the subtext is, I'm just that more special than you. But since they tell their story in hushed overtones, it's hard to hear the undertones. When spiritual glamour gets really out of control, it develops into a more dangerous condition, a good old messiah complex. While anybody with a conscience feels the suffering of the world around them, those with messiah complexes get overly attached to processing other people's suffering. Now, this may sound charitable, but it can be just part of a campaign for their bigger vision. Faux messiahs think they have something extremely unique to offer that will lead to someone's salvation and they're usually in a really big hurry to make it happen. They carry their cross with great pride, and they're reluctant to put it down and join the rest of us working on the ground. Here's some beautiful thinking from Parker Palmer. The human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen, heard, and companioned exactly as it is. When we make that kind of deep bow to the soul of a suffering person, our respect reinforces the soul's healing resources, the only resources that can help the sufferer make it through. I was sorting myself out after a painful breakup, and a distant friend wrote to me along the lines of, It all makes sense now. Your soul is intact. It's an illusion that you were ever hurt. Nothing exists now but the present. Spirit has given you all you need to evolve. Evolve this, I said as I punched the delete key. This is the quintessential example of disassociation, superiority, and dispassion disguised as spirituality. Someone acts like they want to help, but they can't get off their esoteric high horse to wade through the muck of it beside you. Talk to me like you care about my feelings. Relate to me as a human. Like this. You got hurt. This sucks. That is what enlightenment sounds like when someone is in pain. All right, so I'm popping in to say I feel a little shy, but super excited about this. I'm starting classes, they're called attunements. Uh, I'm going to throw down on virtues and compassion and how to work with the heart chakra to ease anxiety. So good. Uh, We're going to be together for 90 minutes. Each class is live, very interactive. It's deep. It's practical. It's fresh content I've never shared before. Just going to share the class live once and then that's it. If you go to daniellaport.com slash attunements. You can get on the list. You can come to class. Everybody gets an A plus. You're all in. This is the stuff you never got in high school. This is what it would be like if church was actually cool. <laughs> all right. danielleaport.com slash attunements. I'll see you there. As we spend more time on the spiritual path, our energy frequency literally becomes more refined. And we might get more selective about Everything. Ideally, our evolving needs don't turn into hypersensitivity, the kind that makes ordinary life less tolerable for us and turns us into precious, demanding people. I'm really clear about what works for me and what doesn't. I like to hang with deep-feeling people, I want clean food prepared with intention, and I don't like heavy metal music in cafes. Except that Much of the world is shallow, dirty, and really loud. So if I'm put out when things aren't just so, I'm not doing myself or anyone else any favors. I'm just becoming unbearable with what I don't like to bear. I had a conversation with Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith about just this. I think we get more specific, but more fluid at the same time, I said to him. You're talking about flexibility and you're talking about unbotherability, which are fruits of the Spirit, he said. There are certain things that one prefers, but if it's not quite going that way, you're not as bothered. You're more available and pliable for that which is trying to happen to happen. That's a maturity that happens as we evolve. Preferably, we become unbotherable. Sometimes, the most enlightened and loving thing you can do is put up and shut up. Not because you can't speak up for yourself, but because sometimes that's the most graceful option. You eat the meat the hostess serves even though you're a vegetarian. You take the horribly eco-destructive gift and say, thank you. You find the common ground in your opposing politics. You apply all your skills of transcendence, and you rise above your sometimes inconvenient principles to embrace what's been brought to you. With love, even. The ego. You've got to be somebody before you can be nobody. This is what most psychologists would say about it. Some contemporary thinkers believe that your ego is an ally on a spiritual path. Because the road to wholeness is not for the faint of personality. You need the self-assurance and the self-interest that the ego provides to carve out your place in the world. You will need to believe in your innate specialness in order to stand up for yourself, which of course is not the same as believing that you are more special than anyone else. You're going to rock your unique and everyone else can rock theirs. Approaches to the ego vary wildly in different spiritual circles, from thinking it should be obliterated and transcended because it's the dictator of all dark behaviors. To respecting it as an integral and very purposeful part of our human makeup. The range of ego opinions leaves a lot of room for confusion to happen and more self denigration on the self help path. Possessing an ego has become one more reason to be down on yourself. St. John Cassian, a Christian monk and theologian from the fourth century, was on the extreme side of the ego argument. Every task, every activity, gives this malicious demon a chance for battle. Not so good. Much more middle of the road was Zen philosopher Alan Watts. The ego is a dithering of consciousness, which is the same as anxiety. So then, ego is part of being conscious, just not part of being highly conscious. Eckhart Tolle teaches extensively about the egoic self and the ego's critical need to maintain a sense of separateness or specialness in order to survive. But he also says, if you consider the ego to be your personal problem, that's just more ego. Jungian psychologist, Marion Woodman, declared that trying to rid oneself of the ego rapes the soul. I'm with her. The ego is part of the human package. Trying to vanquish it is not only impossible, but the attempt itself is destructive. Because self-helpers are so well-versed in the perils of excessive ego, we can be overly diligent about reining it in. We can even mislabel some of our best qualities as the work of the ego. I had a business partner who often admonished me for moving too fast. I did have the need for speed. I loved the smell of a product launch in the morning. I wanted to get to break even in 18 months instead of three years. I was always looking for the most direct route from A to B. And after a number of confrontations between her belief that I moved too quickly and my belief that she moved too slowly, I got downhearted on myself, and I concluded that it must be my lusty ego, that malicious demon, that was spurring me on. But hells no! It was the holy entrepreneurial spirit. When I finally went solo, it became clear that my knack for velocity is one of my most heart-sourced talents. I had been using the ego label as an excuse to dim my light. I was too willing to relegate my genuine specialness in order to be more spiritual. Here's a quote from Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Befriending your ego is a step to befriending your whole self. Think of the fear mind, the ego, as the monster at your table. It's your monster. It's your creation, and you're going to treat it like part of the family, because it is. And like most of your family, your inner creature responds quite well to love and clear expectations. Hey, I see you. I know you have something to tell me. I'm so glad you told me that. I'm so glad you showed me why I'm frightened. And since you're at my table now, please sit up and use your utensils. If you try to banish your ego monster, it will just break through the windows to try and get back in. And with some effort, you'll see that it wasn't necessarily misbehaving. It was just trying to make you feel special. If we're always looking to see how spiritual others think we are, we will never tap the depths of our authentic selves. Their perceived opinions of us will be the greatest distractions to hearing and feeling our truth. The desire to evolve must come from internal inspiration, not external motivation. There are healthy and unhealthy ways to relate to our ego. If we think we're not secure or high enough on some spiritual hierarchy, we're likely to use our ego in some ugly ways to try to advance. We'll try to overcome or silence our ego by becoming hyper-spiritual, which, of course, is a total trap that keeps us from getting our needs for communion met with ourselves and with life. Wanting to be spiritually admired is very different from being spiritually admirable. You're the only one who can validate your spiritual integrity. I was at a spiritual retreat in the Catskill Mountains. The Brahma Kumaris, who are one of my favorite organized faiths, had brought together a group of activists, UN officials, and progressive business and political types to talk about vocational calling and social service. I was there because I was running a think tank in Washington, DC at the time. On the opening night, about 40 of us sat in a circle of plushy chairs and the facilitator asked us to introduce ourselves. Hello, my name is Robert so-and-so, began the elegant gentleman next to me. Then, inspired, he added, and my spiritual name is Walking Bear. Cool. That sparked a full spiritual name disclosure by everyone else that followed. Hi, my name is Madeline. My spiritual name is Bindu. It means point of light. Awesome. Hi everyone, my name is Christopher. My spiritual name is Ananda. It was given to me by Satya Ananda and it means bliss. Great, but this was getting bizarre. Everyone in the room, dignitaries and all, seemed to have been bestowed a spiritual name. My name is Lisa, my spiritual name is Shanti. Kurt here, my guru name is Satya. I was feeling behind the eight ball as the introductions reached me, the last person in the circle, to speak. I thought about using my porn name formula. That's your first pet's name, plus the street you grew up on, which would have made me Jesse Maidstone. I opted for the facts. I said, Hello, my name is Danielle Laporte, and my spiritual name is Danielle Laporte. And in between everyone's laughter, I added, My mother gave it to me. Comedic pause. She thinks it's special, and so do I. Work with what you're given. That kind of full acceptance is the most spiritual act of all. Thank you so much for listening, for feeling, for spreading the word. With love.